Well, it has been our God-given privilege to be able to give some great concentrated study to the only extended prayer of the Lord found in the Scripture, one which was spoken out loud so that his disciples would hear it, and of course through them we too would have this wonderful privilege to hear this prayer. Have any of you ever spent this long on this prayer in your lives? Can you remember? I don't think I have, but even longer than the first time I studied it. But it has been a, a privilege and a blessing. Isn't it true that we listen very carefully? It is in my life. We listen very carefully to the exact some words of someone of unusual Christian stature when they are praying out loud. I remember Dr. Price, Dr. Dolphus Price, when he was alive and attended our church here. Every time that man prayed, I listened carefully to his words. And particularly, is it not true that we listen carefully to someone, a mature Christian's words when they're praying specifically for us, and we wonder what are they, what are the words they're going to say, pray for us? Well, surely this would have been the situation for the disciples that long ago Passover night. And when they heard how the Lord described them to his father the way he did in verses 6 to 11, which we looked at last week, last time, two weeks ago, it just had to have been somewhat uplifting to their sorrowing hearts to, to hear how he described them, don't you think? I mean, look at what he said. And you've probably been talking about this in your groups, but let's review a little bit. He said, these men have kept my word. They have received your words, Father. They have known surely that I came out from thee. You have given them to me. They were yours, and they're still yours. And now, in addition, they are mine. And I am glorified in them. Wow, that had to uplift their hearts somewhat. Especially, you know, after Pentecost, and they reflected back on those words. And then the way he differentiated them from the world in verses 9 and 10 must have also been an encouragement to their sad spirits that night. But still, but still they had not heard him actually make a petition up to this point in our study. We're only at verse 11. How many weeks? Three weeks, and we're only to verse 11. But so far, they hadn't actually heard him make a petition, an actual prayer request for them to his father. He had been talking about them to his father, but they must have been wondering, what is he going to ask on our behalf to the father? And if we had been in their place, isn't this what we would be waiting to hear? What is he specifically going to pray for us? And that's what we find in verses 11b, the latter half of verse 11 to verse 19. So let's look at that now. He finally begins his petitions for his disciples. He says, uh, I'll read all of verse 11, but we're going to start with the latter half in our study. He says in verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father... Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their, their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. There is so much meat in that passage there that I could really spend at least two weeks, maybe three, but I'm going to ask you, for because of time's sake, that you do read your books. I'm going to be talking about some different things and presenting this in a different perspective this morning, but read your books because in the books I at least get more time to talk about uh, when he says, sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth, and the last passage when he says he sanctifies himself. I'm not even going to touch on that really this morning, so make sure you read your books, okay? We're all familiar with myths and fairy tales that include magic genies. When you think of a magic genie, what fairy, or myth I guess it really is, what pops to your mind? Uh, yeah, that was the one I could think of too. I couldn't think of another one, but I know there's other genies. Like, but Aladdin with his magic lamp, you know, he rubs it and the genie comes out. And those genies usually have magic power to grant someone wishes. Like, I think Aladdin's genie was able to grant three wishes, right? Now, in this case, in John 17, we have truth. We don't have a myth. We, have, we don't have a fairy t tale. We have truth. And we have the Son of God talking with God the Father, not some pretend genie with limited power. You know, limited power, he can only grant three wishes, no more. <laughs> and they couldn't, I remember, it couldn't be about not dying. It couldn't, or what? Or more, that's right. Or you couldn't ask for more wishes. That would be a good wish, to ask for more wishes. <laughs> so the genies have limited power, but here we're talking about omnipotence, aren't we? Unlimited power. Think about now, I know I had you thinking about what you'd want on your epitaph. That was kind of uh, morbid, wasn't it? <laughs> Did you think about it, though? Yeah, I thought about that, what I'd like. I won't share that with you, but um, think now about what would you like for God the Son to pray for you. So you had three, three things you could ask him to pray for you. What would you ask God the Son to pray for you? The Father will grant him whatsoever he asks because we know he won't ever ask anything out of the father's will so of all the things that jesus could have asked for for his followers do you think that the disciples were surprised when they heard him ask holy father keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me do you think they were surprised at that i don't know if they were or not would that be what you would have asked for? The petition, the first one that he asked for his followers is that they be kept. It, the petition is for the Father's watchful care over them. In other words, it's a prayer for their preservation. 
why of all the things that Jesus could have asked for, for his followers, does he begin by praying for our preservation? Why does he ask that his own be kept? Well, it's because of the circumstances the disciples would soon find themselves in. They had put their faith in Christ, but what was the problem? He was leaving them. He was soon to depart from them, and they were going to be left behind. The apostles would be in the world without the physical presence of the Lord with them. Sound familiar? What's our situation? We're left behind, not after the rapture, I hope, but we're today left without the physical presence of the Lord with us. Now, do you remember the last time the Lord had used the word world? It was in the very last verse of his farewell discourse. Look at John 16, 33. It wasn't that long before this prayer. When he had said to his men, In the world ye shall have what? Tribulation. And the literal meaning of that Greek word, which is translated uh, tribulation, the literal meaning is pressure. So, think about this. The summary word that Jesus used, you know, succinctly put in one word, the word Jesus used for the effect of the world upon believers is the word pressure. Pressure. And isn't that appropriate? Very appropriate. Don't we, as Christians, feel pressure constantly from the world? Don't we feel the pressure to be silent when we know we should speak out on behalf of the Lord? Uh, don't we feel the pressure to give in to the world's pressure, peer pressure? Don't we feel the pressure to compromise with the world's values and lifestyles? Don't we feel the pressure to be uh, that we are misunderstood so often by those we care about the most? Uh, that we're often misjudged because of our faith? Have you ever felt the, the pressure just to be quiet in order to avoid confrontation with family members like at Thanksgiving? I remember that pressure very well. There's surely all, all the added pressure, too, of the world's seductions and the lusts of the world and the temptations of the world, the pressure to try to live godly in an ungodly world. And these pressures are with us all week long, aren't they? Day after day. So the Lord says to his father, these are in the world. Now keep them in and through this pressurized situation. You ever use a pressure cooker? When I was studying this lesson, I kept thinking of my pressure cooker. I thought, we're in a pressure cooker in this world. He says, keep them in and through this pressure cooker in which they are constantly threatened in so many different ways. He's asking that we be preserved, that we be sustained in the pressure. Notice he doesn't ask that we be delivered from the pressure, does he? He doesn't ask that. Look at verse 15. He says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. If he had prayed for us to be delivered from this world, what would have happened? We would be immediately released from the world's pressure at the time of our salvation or immediately thereafter. As soon as we felt the first pressure after our new life in Christ, we'd be removed if he prayed that we would be kept from the pressure, the tribulation of this 
world. But that's not the Father's will, and so Jesus would never have prayed for that. What is the will of God for the human love gifts that he has given to his Son? It is that we live day by day with the sense of being pressured in an environment where we don't fit in. Why? Why do we have to live day by day in a pressure cooker? Well, it's because we have a mission to fulfill in this world, don't we? So if you feel this pressure, which a lot of you were nodding your heads, if you feel this pressure and it is the result of your faith in Christ, then that's an indication that you are living in godliness. Only those who accommodate themselves to the world, in other words, those who compromise with the world or those who try to ride the fence between the world and Christianity, they're the only ones who don't feel this pressure. There are ways to avoid the world's pressure as a Christian, but not if you live godly in Christ Jesus. What's it say? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They'll feel the pressure. So the Lord in general is praying that we be sustained through the pressure, not delivered from it. But notice that he didn't end his petition with just a request for our preservation. What does he go on to say in verse 11? At the very end of the verse, he says, he wants us kept that we may be, say it, one, and then he adds this, as we are. Who's he talking to? His father. He's praying that we would be one as he is one with his father. The Lord's concern is that we be preserved, we be sustained in the pressure of the world unto an ultimate unity. What kind of unity? It's really a supernatural unity. One that can only be paralleled to the unity that exists between the members of the Godhead. I mean, that amazing unity. Can the members of the Godhead ever be separated from one another? Can they ever be in disharmony with one another? No. I mean, that's supernatural unity. That's a unity that nothing at all can break apart. So Jesus asks his father to keep the apostles and also to keep all his followers, which includes you and I, so that all of the father's love gifts to his son may have the kind of preserved unity known by the Godhead, that they may be one as we are. Nothing can break up all of the compound love gifts. All of us are love gifts. I hope if you're truly saved, we're all love gifts from the Father to the Son. Nothing can break up our compound unity. And that sounds incredible, especially when you think of Christians and divisions and all that. But does our Jesus' prayers answer? Always. So there is this supernatural unity among true believers. There is. We have proof of it in this room. Even though we might by, by be diversified in, in, in little minor points, the main thing is we're unified in Christ if we're part of his body. And this shouldn't really surprise us. This sounds amazing, but it shouldn't surprise us because it's really the teaching throughout the New Testament. In John 10, for example, the Lord talked about gathering his sheep into a flock. 
and that flock must be preserved whole. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about what God is doing in the church for his own glory. He is creating a body for his son. His son is the head. He's creating a body. He's creating a, a bride for his son. And every member of that body must be present, present and working. Can you imagine God presenting his son with a bride who was missing her heart or her arm or even a finger, a toe? God would never present an imperfect gift to his son. We learn that God is building a temple for his spirit, and every single stone must be in place. What are we called? Living stones. Just one missing stone would cause the whole temple to, to collapse. So Christ's petition here is in keeping with the ultimate objective of God, which is that there be a comprehensive unity of all believers with nothing lost. Nothing lost. And realizing this ob objective of God should really give us insight into what God would regard as one of the greatest dangers to his ultimate purposes. And that danger is really twofold. Number one, one part of that danger is that some of his son's followers, those he gave to his son as love gifts, that some of them might be ultimately lost. You know, that having begun, they would be so pressured or so allured and seduced by this world that ultimately some of them would fall away and be eternally lost. The second part of that danger that would be in God's heart um, is that the world's pressures would so scatter and divide whole sections of his flock from other sections that the body would be broken into pieces and there would be no unified body and no completed temple. So the Lord prays against this very danger we're going to get to this subject again if you're feeling a little lost, but we'll get to it in more detail in verses 21 to 23. But the Lord prays against that danger when he says that they may all be perfect in one. That is the ultimate objective, that none of his followers be lost. And that as a unit, we not be divided from one another and scattered in all kinds of directions. And I know you're all thinking about the church and how it's so divided and all these denominations and everything. We'll get more to that in, I guess, maybe next week. I don't know. I'll have to see where the Lord leads me. But we'll get to it eventually. But he's not talking. He's talking about a different kind of unity here. He's talking about a unity of spirit okay, in Christ. Now, it would be a marvelous thing, wouldn't it, if all of the ransomed church of God would be brought safely home to sin no more. Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing? All the ransom church of God be brought home to sin no more. Is that going to happen? Yes, it's going to happen. His prayers are always answered. And that is, now think about this. These are difficult lessons, I know. But that is what it would take, you see, for all, every born-again believer every member of the church, that, that they would get safely home to heaven. That is what it would take for the Son of God ultimately to be glorified. 
that not one love gift given to him by his father would be lost. And all of them together, as a working, God-honoring, unified body, bride, as a temple with every stone in place, would glorify the Father for what he has done through his Son in the church. Think this through again. Put on your thinking caps. Would not there be a blemish in the perfect work of Christ if he had lost some of his love gifts given to him by his Father? What if for every 99 sheep he lost one? Out of every hundred, he lost one uh, to the wolves. Would that present us with the confidence of having a perfect good shepherd? Would you have confidence in a shepherd that lost one out of every hundred? Oh, no, because that could be me. (laughs) What if that was me? That's why he goes out to find even the one that has strayed. Um. What about if he lost? Well, I'll talk about that later. I'll talk about that later, about the apostles. So you see clearly it would be to the loss and to the dishonor of the son if he were to lose any of his own. What if, for example, oh, here's where I get to it. (laughs) What if out of 12 apostles he lost only one? That's worst percentage, isn't it? Do we have a case here of the imperfection of Jesus Christ in that he could not hold onto one of the love gifts given to him by the Father, and that love gift's name was Judas? Do we have an indication of the imperfection of our, of our good shepherd? That's an important issue, and it's one that the the Lord knew it would come up sooner or later. And that's why he spoke the words of verse 12 uh, when he continued in his prayer saying that he had kept those the Father had given him while he was with them in the world. So the Lord knew this this issue would arise. And so he prays that the Father would keep those that he has given to him. Well, he says essentially, first of all, that he has kept while he was with them in the world he kept them. And he said after that, what? And none of them is lost. Now, here's a critical question for you. Who does the word them refer to? It refers to those the Father had given him. None of them is lost. Now, you know, over our years of studying the life of Christ, we have certainly learned time and time again that the disciples were ordinary men. They were. Don't put them on a pedestal. They were ordinary men just like you. What made them different was Jesus Christ in their life and the Holy Spirit filling them. But we notice in, through the Gospels that the Holy Spirit does go out of his way to reveal to us the, in the recorded word their imperfections and their flaws. And their failures, so that in really it's so that we can identify with them. You know, if the Lord could use them, maybe there's some hope for you and I that He could use us. In them, don't we see ourselves? We uh, see, you know, so often they were confused, 
They were slow to learn. <clears throat> they were self-centered. They were emotional. They were tossed about. They were seduced. And sometimes we even found that they were in outright opposition to the direct will of God spoken through the mouth of his son. They had all the same kind of pressures that you and I face. Pressures to turn away. Pressures to deny. Pressures to run in fear. And pressures to lose faith. Remember Thomas? I won't believe unless I see it with my eyes. They had the same kind of pressures that we battle with. And we read of their battles and we come to recognize what a tremendous threat the world's pressures are. But in spite of the pressures and in spite of the disciples' many flaws and stumbles and failures, the Lord Jesus preserved the men who had been given to him by his father. Even though they were frequently divisive among themselves, weren't they? Always struggling to see who would get the best seats and who would have the greatest honor, etc. Um, as has been the church. Has the church been divisive just like the disciples? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yet, Jesus prayed for their preservation unto complete unity. He prayed that regardless of all the pressures to divide and to scatter, and even in times when everything looked like utter failure and defeat for Christianity, as when the, the 11 scattered from him when he was arrested. That looked like, uh-oh, defeat for Christianity. What about the dark ages in our history, in church history? Looked pretty grim then, like a defeat for Christianity. But Jesus prayed, and he prayed that in the end, all those who had been given to him by his Father would be one. And together, in preserved unity, we would behold his glory. Remember, that's the climax of this whole prayer in verse 24. That together in unity, a unity such as God, the Godhead has, we would behold Christ's glory. So while Jesus was on earth, he kept these men until this time when he would turn them over to his Father's keeping. I've kept them while I was in the world. Now, Father, you keep them. So in effect, he's saying, I've kept them and not one is lost. But would it not seem that there was an exception to that statement? And that is why Jesus referred in verse 12 to the son of perdition. Judas Iscariot appears to have been an exception, just as there are people we know who appear to be exceptions to the Lord's preservation power. You think of people? You think, well, they once seemed to know Christ, but not anymore. Totally apostate. Just out there totally in the world. Have no concern. They appear to be exceptions to the Lord's keeping power. So how do we explain these apparent exceptions? Even in the apostolic company itself, do we not have the surest illustration that a person can be as close to Jesus Christ as possible? I mean, even preaching for him and doing miracles in his name, which G Judas did, and yet in the end fall away. You know, from the very beginning, the Lord knew who would betray him, didn't he? 
Remember way back in John 6, verse 70, he told the 12 that he had chosen them, even knowing that one of them was a devil? You know, he called Judas a devil, not even a demon. He called him a devil. The word is devil there. And now, in John 17, 12, the term he uses for this devil, Judas Iscariot, is what? Son of perdition. And you know what that literally means? Son of waste. He wasted his life, didn't he? Wasted all his opportunities. It also means son of destruction. The literal way to read the Lord's words, none of them is lost but the son of destruction. I mean, if you read it like that, you could have doubts. You know, none of them is lost but the son of destruction. And you might think, well, there are people who can be lost. Of course, the them is referring to those the Father gave. But here's the correct, literal way that we need to read that verse. None of them, your love gifts, is lost. And you could almost put a period there. But the son of destruction is lost. That's the proper way to read it. Jesus is praying for the men God gave him. None of them is lost. But Judas is lost. And thus, according to all according to God's providence, Scripture is fulfilled. What Scripture is he talking about there? Psalm 41.9, where it predicted that the coming Messiah would be betrayed by one of his own familiar friends who would lift up his heel against him. So the Lord, in his prayer, was speaking of Judas in completely different terms than he was speaking of the other disciples. None is lost except the one whose nature it was to be a son of waste, a son of of destruction. You know what's interesting is to find that in Second Thessalonians 2:13, or excuse me, 2:3, the coming man of sin, known as the Antichrist, is called the exact same thing. In Second Thessalonians 2:3, the Antichrist is also called the son of perdition. It makes you wonder if. He might initially also, like Judas, be associated with God's people and maybe even preach and maybe even work wonders and miraculous things. Oh, he will. We do know that, don't we? Because the scripture says he will. It's interesting to think about that. The bottom line in mentioning all of this is that Judas was no exception, okay? There were no exceptions to Jesus' preservation of his own while he was on earth, just as there will be no exceptions to the Father's preservation of all those he has given to his Son. So what distinguished Judas from, let's say, Peter? Let's use Peter as a representative of all true believers, okay? What distinguished Judas from Peter? What ultimately kept Peter from falling like Judas fell? Do you remember when the Lord said to Peter, and actually this was on this very same night as his high priestly prayer, just a few hours earlier, do you remember when Jesus said to Peter that Satan had desired to have him and to do what to him? Sift him like wheat. But, but what? Aren't you glad he said that, but? (laughs) But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail 
not. And here again, we note that the Lord did not pray that Peter wouldn't be pressured by the evil one, by the world. He didn't pray that he wouldn't be sifted. He doesn't pray for our protection either from those kinds of things. But what does he pray for? What does he pray for? He prays that ultimately we would not be lost, that nothing given to him by his Father will be lost, that he will raise the entire body, the entire church, every individual sheep, every living stone, every member of the body, he will raise them all up on the last day. Look at John 6.39. Take a, just go back a few chapters. John 6.39. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Of course, this is a familiar verse, so you all know it already, but just look at it. This is Jesus speaking here in John 6. He says, and John 6, 39, And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose one, two, nothing but should raise it up against at the last day. Don't fear the grave. He's talking about beyond the grave, beyond the tomb. He's preserved it so that all of us together, corporately, are going to be raised at the last day. What could be a better wish to make of the eternal God than that your faith would never, ever fail? so that you will indeed be raised up on the last day. Have you had three wishes? That should be one of them. I don't ever want my faith to fail. Pray for my faith, Lord, that it will not fail. Guess what? He is praying for that. This is his intercessory prayer. He's already praying for that. We have it right here. So your wish has been granted. You don't need a, you don't need a lamp <laughs> to rub. We have, we have a holy God a wonderful, compassionate, loving, caring, preserving God, not some make-believe genie. If you have given your heart to the Lord Jesus, he has prayed for you. He's your intercessory high priest, and he continues to pray that your faith will not fail. So it won't. But he did not pray that Judas's faith would not fail. Why? Well, he's only our intercessory high priest. He's only the intercessory high priest for those who the Father has given to him. Those who have put their faith in him. Guess what? He couldn't pray that Judas's faith wouldn't fail because Judas never had true saving faith. So he couldn't pray for him in that way. Now let me ask you another question. I'm always full of questions. If, if uh, Jesus did not intercede for his people, would we ultimately be preserved? <clears throat> what do you think? What do you think? What did he say to Peter? Peter representing all of us. Satan hath desired to have you. But I, the only hope for Peter was what? That Jesus prayed for him. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. How about uh, Hebrews 7.25? He, speaking of Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost that come to him by, to come to God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I think from those verses we can conclude that no one would ever be preserved through all the immense pressures of this world to deny Christ. We have pressures to deny him, 
like Peter did, to abandon our faith, to utterly let go of our profession and become a casualty, none of us would ever be preserved from all that if Jesus did not intercede for us. It says that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. I wonder if he intercedes for us throughout all of eternity. That's what it says, right? He ever liveth. I don't know. But that is why he prayed. Um, No one would ever be preserved if he didn't intercede for us. Some call our eternal security the preservation of the saints. But you know what it really is? It's the preservation of the Savior isn't it? He's the one who preserves us. His hold upon us is what we rely on today, tomorrow, and always. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. And any apparent exceptions to that truth, like Judas, are never really born of God in the first place. They went out from us. Why? John, First John? Because they were never really of us to begin with. Now, does hearing that give you joy? It should if you're really a true believer. That hearing that should give you joy. It absolutely should. The Lord Jesus did not save us and then leave us in this world so that we could be miserable. All right, this is where you all smile again. <laughs> he did not say in the Sermon on the Mount, let your misery so shine before the world that they might see it and wonder what kind of a killjoy God those Christians have. <laughs> Some people act like that, don't they? You say, oh, if that's a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with it. They're always down in the mouth and unhappy. And just let your light so shine. You know, he wants us to be joyful. He gave his life so that his joy might be fulfilled in us. Look at verse 13. He wants us to have joy even in the midst of an evil world that hates us, doesn't understand us, misjudges us, and all the rest. He wants his joy fulfilled in his people. And do you know the type of joy that his joy was? He says that he wants his joy. I don't just want my joy. Don't you want his joy? My joy is superficial. It goes up and down like a roller coaster sometimes. I want his joy. You know what kind of joy his joy is? His joy is the joy of fellowship with God. Although he was a man of sorrows, and he was well acquainted with grief, and all the hatred of the world, and the pressures of the world, and the misunderstanding, and all the rest of it, even though all of that was true for him, yet the joy of the Lord was his strength. Nehemiah 8.10 Christ's joy, the joy he wants you and I to have, is in fully knowing the care and the love of the Father for him. Do you know that care and love? If you do, if you're secure in that, you can have joy, even in the midst of of pressure. Well, this was a very sad night for the apostles. So far, it was very sad. But guess what? Bad news. It was going to get even worse. It was going to even get a whole lot sadder for them before it was all over. But the Lord wanted them to know that joy cometh in the morning. Actually, joy would come Sunday morning. Um, All throughout his final words to them, and if you look back through this, the last uh, discourse he gave to them, 
you'll find that over and over again he told them that they could have joy unspeakable and full of glory, even in the midst of the worst that the world could throw at them, which they hadn't really seen yet. You know, he's been protecting them from the world. The world has hated him, but he's been protecting them. Even when they come to arrest him in Gethsemane, what does he do? He says, you know, who do you come to arrest? And they said, Jesus. And then he says, well, let them go then. He's, all, he's protecting them. So they haven't really seen the hatred of the world yet. They will. But throughout this chapter, he's telling them, when it comes, and it's going to come, you can even have joy. He says in chapter 14, he told them, to begin with, if they really loved him, they could rejoice because he was returning to his father. John 14, 28. He told them in chapter 15, after speaking to them about abiding in him as the true vine, he said, uh, These things I have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. <clears throat> then in chapter 16, he told them that their sorrow would be turned to joy. Remember the illustration of a woman giving birth? Just as when she gives birth to that child, then she has the joy, the sorrow is over with. He told them that their hearts would rejoice with a joy no man could ever take from them. And he said that if they prayed in his name, their prayers would be answered and their joy would be full. That was in verse 24. He also said in the very last verse of his farewell discourse that they could be of good cheer. What's that if not joy? Because he had overcome the world. And in him we too can be overcomers. And now, wouldn't you know, for the seventh and final time, in his last words to them before the cross, he tells his men via this prayer to his father that they might have his joy. He said all these things in this prayer so that they would hear them and have his joy fulfilled in themselves. So go back and look. Seven times he talks about them having his joy. Isn't that amazing? Well, then in verses 14 to 16, there is a rep repetition of his prayer for preservation. But this time, he expands on it. He gives it in a little more full terms. Back in verse 11, he had said, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And now look at verse 14. He expands on that by saying, they are not only left in the world after his departure, but the world is going to hate them because they are not of the world. Now there are two main matters presented about the believer's circumstances in verse 14. Number one, they are the recipients of God's word. Look at verse 14, the first part. He says, I have given them thy word. So first thing presented to us about followers of Christ is that they are the recipients of God's word. What's the second thing? They are the objects of the world's hatred. And guess what? Those two things go inseparably together in the lives of believers. We're recipients of the world and because at word, and because we are recipients of the word, the world hates us. Now it's important that the Lord described his men here as those to whom he had given God's word. Think about this. He could have said these are the men who have given up everything, Father, to follow me. And now the world is going to hate them. So, Father, keep them. Please keep them. These guys have given up all. He could have said, these are my disciples and my friends. So, Father, keep them. 
Or he could have said, these are those who have taken up their cross to follow me. But the Lord here, he doesn't talk to his father in terms of what his followers have done. Here he talks in terms of what he has done. And what did he do? He gave them God's word. You see, by stating it that way, he purposely states it that way. By putting it like that, he is putting the responsibility for the circumstances these men would soon find themselves in, the world hating them. He's putting that responsibility to care for them, to keep them on him and his father. Why? Because it's his his fault, you could say, in effect. It's father's fault and his fault for giving them the word because they gave them the word of God. The world hates them. So putting it that way puts a responsibility to keep them and care for them on himself. You get it? once we get out of this high priestly prayer, but this is all deep stuff here, deep doctrine. Now, why would these same men, why would these same men soon to be meeting in, in secrecy behind closed doors for fear of, why would they um, soon be meeting like that? Why would every one of them face persecution from the world and all of them except John even be killed for their faith? Killed. We're talking about Killed crucified awful things they did to these men why would every single one of them really suffer for their faith the whole reason is simply because they had been given the word of god from the mouth of the son of god and they received it they believed it and that changed everything for them (laughs) it sure changed my life back in 1972 when someone for the first time presented me with the word of God. Nothing has ever been the same since. You know, if think about it, if God, the son, hadn't given these men the word of God, otherwise, you know what, this very night might have found them sleeping somewhere on the hillside of the city of Jerusalem, out under the stars, very peacefully, you know, it's the middle of the night now, I don't know, two or three o'clock in the morning, whatever it might be. They would have been sleeping peacefully outside of the city of Jerusalem, as all the other Galilean Passover pilgrims would have been somewhere if they hadn't received the word of God. The thing that made the difference for them is that Jesus had chosen to give them God's word. And the same is true for you and I. Where would you be this morning if the word of God hadn't been given to you sometime in your life? Would you be here in this kind of hot room listening to me ramble on and on? about things that confuse you and would you or would you be out raking your leaves picking up pine cones (laughs) Um, with your children tending to your children you know playing golf maybe you'd be dead by now maybe because of Christ it just changed your life to the point that you didn't take your life or something I don't know maybe some of you would be engaged in some deep sin of some kind but most of us would Just be living like everybody else out there in in the world. It is, I hope, you're you're here this morning because you are a recipient of God's word, and and it interests you, and you want to know more and more about it. And that word, you know, is a two-edged sword, isn't it? You know what one of those edges has done? It's 
cut you off from being different from the rest of the world. Whether you like it or not, it's cut you from the world. In verse 14, for the first time, we have here the word and the world being brought together. The world hates us because of the word we have been given, and in faith we have believed. Once you are born again, and how does Peter say we are born again? By corruptible seed? No, by incorruptible, which is the word of truth. Once we are born again, we are translated out of the authority or the power of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. Recipients of the word become objects of the world's hatred because we are no longer of the world as Jesus is not of the world. Our citizenship is where? Now, not in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are sanctified by the word, which is truth. We are set apart for his service and for his glory. Now look at verse 15. Our human reasoning might think, well, since the pressures and the hatred and the evil is so great in this world, then why doesn't the Lord just take us from the world as soon as we are saved? We talked about that earlier. Have you ever prayed? And I'm sure somebody in here has, because I can think of a time when I did. Have you ever prayed, Lord, just take me out of here? I don't care. Just do it now. I just want to be out of here. And, you know, you're not talking about the rapture, although that would be nice, right? But you're just saying, Lord, I just want to be home with you. Do you know that there were four men in the scripture who prayed that? And they were all godly men. Anybody? I'm just going to let you have a guess. Anybody can? Anybody remember who some of those might have been? It would be great if you know all four of them. Who were some of the men that prayed that the Lord would just take them? Elijah was one. For fear of Jezebel. <laughs> Job. Very good, Job. He said, you know, it would have been better if I hadn't even been born. Just, Lord, just take me. So we got Elijah and Job. Jonah. Who said that? Very good. Got some good students. Jonah did. He, Jonah prayed that. They didn't want those sorry Ninevites saved. <laughs> I think it was out under the juniper tree, wasn't it? That he prayed that, Lord, just take me. Who else? One more. One you'd never think of. Well, I don't know in the sense that that was as... I don't know. Think about that. But there's enough... Ruth, did you have your hand up? No. Moses! What? Moses was so sick and tired of all those complaints he was getting in the wilderness. So that's in... Uh, let me see. I got the verse. Numbers 11, 15. He prayed the same thing. It says, Moses, Elijah, Job, and Jonah. Guess what? God did not answer their prayers, did he? Uh, well, then, um, now let me skip this for time's sake. I'm going to get done, whether it kills me. We've got a few minutes. <laughs> there are two reasons the Lord doesn't take us out of this world. The first is found in verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. As the father had a mission for his son, the son has a mission for us. We are to let our light so shine before this world that they might see our good works and do what? Glorify us? No, glorify our father which is in heaven. We are to take the gospel into all the world. And uh, now the disciples, you see, are hearing these words about being sent into the world 
really before ever having heard any of the Great Commission statements that they would later hear. This is the first time, really, that they're hearing that they're going to be sent into the world. This is really... um, This is really, they're learning why they can't follow Jesus. Remember back in chapter 13 of John? He had said, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't follow me. And that upset Peter so much, he says, why can't we follow you, Lord? And now he's giving them the answer. I'm going to keep you here for a purpose. You have a mission. You're to go out into the world. Now, they haven't heard the Great Commission's statements of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Luke 24, 47. Mark 16, 15, Acts 1, 8. They haven't heard any of those yet. So here now, for the first time, they're hearing that they have an assignment that must be fulfilled first before they can then follow him to the Father. And why are you and I left in the world? Why aren't we just taken as soon as we get saved? Well, same reason, to bear fruit for for God to sow the seed of his word that he has given to us. He didn't just give us the word for our own good. We're to share it. We're to sow it. We're to be witnesses for him. To where? To the uttermost parts of the world. We're to teach his word and we're to make disciples. Why? Well, this is where the second reason comes in that Jesus doesn't take us out of the world. We are left here to bring glory to God. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 4 of this prayer? He says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. His intention is to keep us in this world until we have finished the work, like he did, that he has assigned to each of us individually to do. I pray this all the time. I say, Lord, let me live long enough to finish the work that you have given for me to do. Now, I don't know when that work will be finished. I would like to finish the life of Christ. So at least maybe I have another two or three years to go. <laughs> but, and he will keep us here unless we, you know, really mess up. And there are some who sin unto death. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation, but he takes them home early because they're ruining their testimony and not glorifying But otherwise, he leaves us here to finish the work he has given us to do. In the meantime, he is not going to completely insulate us from the world's pressure and hatred. But what he will do, he intercedes for us. I pray that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Now, you can read that word evil either way. You can read it to keep us from evil in general or to keep us from the evil one. Either way is appropriate. What does it mean to be kept from evil in a world like this? Well, we know from the lips of the Lord himself what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're going to be insulated from the hatred of the world. He even told his men earlier that they would suffer persecution. They'd be de-synagogue. They'd be imprisoned and some of them would even lose their lives. So that doesn't mean to be kept from evil means that you're going to have your life spared or um, be insulated from all the misunderstanding of this cruel world. Nor does it mean necessarily that our unsaved family members 
will ever change their attitude toward us. No guarantee on that. It doesn't mean automatic immunity from sickness and harm, does it? I mean, that's the wealth, health, prosperity gospel, but it's not biblical. It doesn't even mean we'll be protected from martyrdom. There are going to be casualties. After all, why would we expect any less? This is a war, and we are battling against evil, and the evil one, and there will be casualties. Like that Iranian pastor, I hope the Lord, I don't know, I haven't heard the latest on him. I hope the Lord spares him, but even if he doesn't, that doesn't mean he isn't kept from the evil one, because he'll be delivered right into the presence of the Lord. Being kept from the evil means that in Christ, the evil one has no power over us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Even if we should be killed for our faith, and if the Lord tarries, it could come to that, the way things are going. Um, even if we were killed for our faith, we would be more than overcomers, more than conquerors. We would be overcomers. We have eternal life, and even in our physical lives, we are preserved by Almighty God until the second before Jesus calls us to be in his presence. You know, until Jesus calls you home, you are utterly invincible. The evil one has no power over you at all to, to take your life until the Lord calls you home. Think of that. You're invincible until that moment. Of course, we don't know when that moment might be. <laughs> to keep be kept from the evil is to know that in spite of the constant temptation to fall, in spite of the world's hatred and misunderstanding, none of us who are truly born again, love gifts from the Father to the Son, will ever finally, ultimately fall. None of us. Our faith will not fail. And our individual bodies will one day be raised up together in one complete, unified body to behold the awesome wonder of the glory of our beloved bridegroom. And that is the Lord's keeping power. And that should put a smile on your face. Let's pray. Father, were it not for assurances like, like these we've read this morning, we would surely live in fear. And joy would definitely evade all of us. But how we thank you that our dear Lord Jesus makes intercession for us. Father, I ask that you would help us to overcome the pressures and the, and the traumas of, of living the Christian life in this dark, evil world. And help us to do that by becoming impassioned about the mission that you have given each of us in this life to serve you and to bring you glory. Help us to think in terms of what time we do have left to do something for you, to redeem our time wisely. Thank you, Father, for the truth that nothing can touch us until the wor our work here is finished. We're so very, very grateful for your safekeeping because we have no confidence whatsoever in ourselves. Thank you that you are our preserver and that all the true ransomed of God will be saved to sin no more one day. We love you, Jesus. I ask that you would watch over every woman. Do again keep her from the evil of this world and bring us back safely next week. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.